Good morning, everybody. Uh, everybody that is here, good job remembering to spring forward today. Um, Marty, I have to read your, I have to read it. So uh, last night in the Greenhouse Voxer chat, uh, I said, why do we even do daylight savings time? And uh, this is Mr. Mr. Martin Sanders' theory on daylight savings. He said, uh, whoops, that's the wrong message. Sorry, don't want to read that one. Um, so I don't fully understand, but in a nutshell, the, gover- the government stores up daylight during the winter and then releases it during the summer. I've been on a lot of government facilities, but certain portions were always restricted. I think that's where they store the daylight. <laughs> so just, just M- Mr. Martin Sanders, everyone. Uh, anyway, good job remembering. Um, so this week is our last week in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been in Acts for... About a year. Uh, last summer, we kind of had a little, a little hiatus. We did, uh, we did some other stuff, but roughly a year. Um, and that sounds like a long time at first, but when we really think about it, uh, when you realize just how much is in the book of Acts, you realize we probably could have been in this book. I mean, I kid you not, probably for like five years if we just went all the way through verse by verse and, and did it that way. So uh, with that being said, there's so much that we weren't able to cover there's so much that I'm not going to be able to cover today in these last two chapters. Uh, and so I just, I challenge everybody that's in this room, don't let today be the last day that you look at Acts until the next time that you're in church. Um, really dive in, uh, continue to read, continue to see what it is that God has to say through this book. I can personally say that uh, through my study of the book of Acts, some of the most uh, some of the most intense, some of the most certain convictions and callings and, and, and times in my walk with Jesus have come from what I've read from the book of Acts. Um, just the way that I see the people in this book living their lives, the way that the kind of trust that I see um, these people display is just incredible. And every time I read it, uh, I'm left with this, this haunting reality, and, and that reality is the fact that if I had to be honest, my life does not look like what these people's lives look like. Um, granted, part of that is because they lived 2,000 years ago, but the other part is because of the fact that when it comes to my faith, I don't necessarily think that I trust like these people trusted. I don't think that I'm quite as willing as uh, many of the people that we read about in this book are, um, and maybe you can you can sympathize and empathize with that, but uh, but anyway, I just challenge you, continue to, continue to go through this. Um, so, a little side note. Today, we are going to be in Acts chapter 27 and 28. So, if you want to get a head start, you can flip there. Um, I'm not going to jump in quite yet, but that's where we're going to be. Um, I wanna, the approach that I want to take to these last two chapters is really a, a big picture kind of approach. And that's why I mentioned the fact that, hey, we're going to be skipping over a lot of things. So as we go through these two chapters, there's a lot of things that are worthy of more time, worthy of more attention, worthy of more study, but we just don't have time to go through them all today. And uh, likewise, that's the same, the same time constraint we've had with this in, entire book. Um, I want to come at it with the big picture, though. What is the big picture of the book of Acts? What is the main point that we can glean from this book as we've gone through it? About six months ago, I was teaching on Acts 12, and I came up with a one-sentence summary to describe the book of Acts, kind of the purpose of the book of Acts. And this is what it was, and I think it still reigns true. God, by His Word, through His Spirit, 
working in and through surrendered servants, is carrying out his good plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, and it cannot be stopped. This is the purpose, the purpose of the book of Acts. The purpose of the book of Acts is the gospel moving forward. It is God's blueprint for how the church is supposed to look, for how the church is supposed to function, and for how this message that we claim to reach the ends of the earth. In Acts 1, Jesus told the disciples, you will be my witnesses, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the amazing thing about this book is that the story doesn't just end with Acts chapter 28, but the story has continued on throughout history. The story continues on with us today. We have a, we have a really uh, strong tendency as we read the Bible to kind of read it as exactly what I just said. We read it as stories, and stories have a beginning and an end, but a lot of the stuff in the Bible isn't just an account. There's a bigger picture to be gleaned. There's, there's something bigger to be taken, and that's what we're going after here today. Um, the book of Acts is not just a collection of accounts and events, but it is. Uh, it is that. It is a, a, a book of uh, a collection of brief stories that came about because one person or a group of people decided to do a couple things. Any place that we read in this book, it's because of the fact, the reason that it's in this book is because of the fact that a person or a group of people heard God's voice, they then trusted God's voice, and thus they fulfilled God's plan. It's really that simple. You know, we start with the, the disciples at the very beginning of Acts. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem till the, till the Holy Spirit comes. What do they do? They, they heard Jesus' voice. Then they trusted. They waited. The Holy Spirit came. Thus, the plan was fulfilled. You know, you, you, it, multiple times, Paul is spoken to face-to-face from Jesus. What does he do? He hears. He trusts. And thus, he fulfills. And that is still today what we are called to do. And so, so, the reason I say that is because the whole reason that Paul is at where he is, is at the place that he finds himself at the beginning of Acts 27 is because he heard God's voice. So Paul is getting ready to, to take this trip to Rome because in Acts 23, about four chapters earlier, Jesus said to him, they came to him in a, in, in, he came to him and, said, and it actually says he stood beside him and Jesus told him, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. So it's not random that Paul is where he's at. It wasn't just the, the, the infinite possibilities of decisions that Paul could have made in his life ended him up where, where he is today. No, it's because he is specifically following the voice of God. He is specifically following the call that he has received. Paul heard the voice. Now, I want to stop there because I, I want to be clear on something. You know, we, when you hear the phrase hear the voice of God, or I heard the voice of God, oftentimes, you know, we automatically start to think that, that it has to be audible. It has to be an audible voice. That's not the case. However, just like we had people share last week, many people have experienced that. People have experienced God coming to them and, and speaking to them in an audible voice. But that's not the only way. This, this book right here, the Bible, this is God's voice. A, a fellow believer who's speaking into your life, that can be God's voice. That, that still small voice as you're, as you're praying, as you're leaning into God, as you're asking him to reveal things to you, that still small voice, that's the voice of God. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't want us to get too caught up on, okay, I've never audibly heard God, so this doesn't apply to me. No, it's still, it still applies. It's just, it, it, the, the point is, someone heard the voice and they decided to trust it. And then there's another question that comes along with that is, 
when you do hear his voice, or if you have heard his voice, are we going to be willing to follow his voice? Are we actually going to be willing to, to do what he says? You know, the, the, the interesting thing about, about uh, what we see when God speaks to someone in the word is it doesn't usually come with a whole lot of details. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's usually just a sentence or two. Um, God's voice doesn't come with a list of details, but what it usually does come with is a promise. It usually comes with a promise and a request to trust or a, a, uh, a, 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 a compelling, compelling voice that, that calls you to trust. Not details, but a promise and a request to trust. When Jesus tells Paul that he's going to go to Rome, the first thing he says is take courage. Many other places in the Word, it says that, uh, it says, do not be afraid, or it says, I am with you, or a combination of both. God's voice always comes with a promise, but the question always ends up being, are we going to trust that promise? Are we going to trust his voice? And so finally, we can, we can jump in here um, right after this, actually. I, I was just kidding. Um, so one more thing. Acts 27 and 28, as I went through it and as I studied it, I think that it is single-handedly, aside from, maybe, aside from what Jesus went through on the cross and the things that he had to go through leading up to his death, it is single-handedly the most continuous series of unfortunate events that you can find in the New Testament. Um, I would say in the entire Bible, but then there's Job, so we can't really, we can't really uh, say that Paul had to go through way more than Job, but uh, it's a comparison. So Paul is going to have an abundance of opportunities in these two chapters to have his trust tested. Because he said, okay, I'm willing. He's taking the first step to go. He's heard the voice. Now he's taking the first step, but he will be tested. Now, a lot of this I'm going to read either very quickly, or I'm going to summarize, or I'm going to skip. Um, I know that might sound bad, but we just, we don't have time today to uh, go through verse by verse two chapters. So, I'm going to start with Acts 27. I'm going to read the first, uh, first 12 verses. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a, to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go with his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther... We sailed under the lee of Crete of, off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing, south, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. 
So, summarize those verses. Paul has now set out. He has said, I'm committed. I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to get there. I'm going to trust. And immediately, he is met with resistance. It, it, you saw the words with difficulty come up multiple times. You saw uh, loss of life. You saw that the winds were against them. Um, I think that is symbolic of the fact that when we, as God's people, follow, when we hear his voice and we decide that we are going to follow that voice, there is going to be resistance. There is going to be trials. And even the more interesting thing than that is that these things that Paul is facing, they're completely out of his control. It's the weather. It's, it's, it's Mother Nature that is causing him to have difficulty. Mind you, Paul is in chains right now. He is either one chained to other people or chained to this ship that he is on. He has no control over what is happening. He only has the control over one thing. And that thing that he has control over is his, is his decision of whether or not he is going to trust. Whether or not he's going to trust or whether or not he's going to doubt. Now, if you ask me if I'm in his position, first of all, I probably wouldn't even be in his position uh, because at the end of Acts chapter 26, the last verse, it says that uh, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I probably, if I knew I had a way out, I probably would have taken it. Um, and so, so he, he finds himself in a place where he has no control. I think that us as God's people, we find ourselves, when we begin to follow the voice of God in situations where we don't have any control, but what we always have control over is whether or not we will trust his voice, whether or not we will give ourselves over to what that call was. And so then you jump into the next, uh, next couple of verses there. Um, I'll read through them real quick, but to summarize, it's, eventually, it's essentially going to be the same thing. There's more difficulty. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a, tempest a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and they could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergrid the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the, on the surface, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard, and with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved at last was abandoned." Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So more difficulty, more resistance. As a matter of fact, uh, the writer goes as far to say that all hope had been lost at this point. Have you ever been in a season where it seems like all hope is lost? Have you ever been there? And has it ever, have you ever reached that point after following a call of God? Maybe it was because 
of God's call, maybe it wasn't. Have you ever been in a season of life when all hope seemed lost? Well, this is where these men find themselves. But what we see is that the child of God, the the person of God who received the call, they are hope in hopeless situations. They provide encouragement. They provide the hope in a situation where it seemed like all hope had been lost. In the midst of of this moment, when they truly believe that they are at their last leg, they are, are facing certain death, Paul says, do not be afraid, or an angel says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who have sailed with you. He also says that, he says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, Paul could have very easily said, an angel of God, but he doesn't say that. He says, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. Remember the situation that Paul is finding himself in right now. He is in the midst of of a storm that is likely going to kill him, and he's there because God called him there, and all of these people also believe that they're going to die, and Paul, he has the audacity to say, an angel of the God whom I serve and whom, or who I belong to and whom I worship told me this. At that moment, those people around him, those other soldiers would probably be looking at him saying, oh, your God, like your, your God is, is kind of the one that if you trust your God, he's the same one that got you here in this place. He's the same one that's about to let us die. You're, you're going to trust him? And Paul says, yes. God came and he comforted Paul. He provided hope in a hopeless situation. We, as the people of God, as we pursue the call that God puts on our life, there will be moments when there's a hopeless situation, and we have the opportunity, we have the choice of whether or not we're going to be those people that, that give out hope in a hopeless situation. We get to decide if we're going to be people who trust, or if we're going to be people who allow our circumstances to dictate our actions. Once again, Paul has no control over his life at this moment, but what he does have control over is whether or not he will trust. So we keep going. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing the land, so they took a sounding, they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 50 fathom, 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I'm going to skip the next couple of verses, but basically what happens is they, they reach a point where they're kind of encouraged. They feel like things are going to turn around. They, they feel okay. Uh, if we jump ahead to verse 39 of chapter 27, it says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them, and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. So they're at this point, and uh, things are starting to turn around. Things, things look like they're going to end up being, end up being pretty good. But then the very next verse, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. 
Now, it's really easy for us to view this part of the story through the lens of a 21st century American, but what is important to remember is that uh, there is no such thing as roadside assistance. There is no such thing as AAA. There is no Uber during this time. And so when we read that their ship ran aground and that the stern was being broken up, they are stuck here. They have no hope of getting off this island, which they've never been to before. Uh, it is going to take quite a bit of time to either fix this ship or find a new ship that they can then get on and, and go to where they need to go to. So they are stuck. Have you ever been in a season where you feel like you're stuck? Where you feel like all of your dreams, all of your hopes had to be put to the side, had to be put on hold? Have you ever been there before? And if so, did you choose to trust? Or did you take things into your own hands? Once again, Paul, he really has no choice. He has no control over what's happening to him right now. But he does have control over whether or not he will trust. And so we jump into Acts 28. It says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. Now at this point, I'm, if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Everything I just went through, I narrowly escaped with my life a couple times. I finally get here, and a, really a snake, a snake bites me. And not only that, but it's a viper. So this snake is supposed to kill him. It actually says that when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and, no, and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And so, once again, Paul had no control over what was happening to him. He had no control that this snake was going to bite him. It was an unexpected roadblock in, in his mind of what, how this was supposed to happen. Have you ever had an unexpected roadblock pop up? And did you trust? And what we see is that Paul, he chooses to trust, and he uses all of this misfortune, he uses all of these trials that he's went through to this point to share the good news with these people. It says that in the, now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island named, named Publius, I don't know if that's how you say that, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. See, Paul used the trial upon trial upon trial series of unfortunate events. He used that to be a way that he got to tell somebody else about the healer. He got to point someone to Jesus in the midst of his trials. Now, it makes me ask myself, if, am I the kind of person that when I'm walking through trials in life, and I'll be honest, my life hasn't really been filled with many trials. I can't stand up here and, and act as though, you know, I've walked through anything like this or anything like I'm sure many people in this room have walked through. But I can tell you this, that that. I do not look for those 
opportunities to share the good news with people. I do not. I, I, I typically, and, and what I would say most people do, is we try to block out those trials. We try not to remember them. We try to just get past them, and then uh, that way they don't have to creep into our mind. Instead of allowing those things to, to allow us to share the good news and how God got us through and how God is the healer and how God is the restorer and how God is the one that saves. We can only do that if you really trust that God is all those things. You can only do that when you see that it is God who saves, it is God who restores. And it's not us, it's not our own abilities. In reality, we lack a lot of control. We do not have nearly as much control over this life as we think that we do. You know, we, we so often, we think, you know, if, if our money's in the right place, if, our, if we have a job, if we have a family, you know, we're kind of invincible, but it's just really not true. There are things that happen that are completely out of our own control, but the question remains, are we going to trust? The only thing that we have control over as we follow the call of God is whether or not we will trust. And so we jump forward to verse 11 of chapter 28. And Paul is almost there. He's almost there. It says that after three months, so like I said, this fix of this ship or the, the, the getting of a new ship, it was not going to be something that was quick. It was going to be something that took time. So after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse as we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to, I don't know how to say this word, Petuli? I don't know how to say that. Let me know if you do. There we found brothers and invited, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, get this, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Remember what Jesus told Paul in Acts chapter 23, when he, the whole reason that Paul is where he is right now? What did he say? He said, take, hold on, I gotta make sure I got it. He said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. And so Paul is seeing this unfold now, right in front of his eyes. He's, he's at Rome. He's here. He's like, okay, I've made it. And it says that he thanks God and that he takes courage. Paul is seeing in front of his eyes the faithfulness of God play out in his life. He, he is seeing that God is, has been worthy of his trust the entire time. And that God will continue to be worthy of his trust. And so he gets here. And he has the opportunity now to speak with these Jewish leaders. Verse 17, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar." Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. 
when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Do we ever think about our obedience? Do we ever think about how our willingness to trust could be the difference between someone hearing the gospel, someone coming to know the Lord? Do we think about it that way? And then also the opposite, do we ever think about the fact that our unwillingness and our disobedience to share the gospel could directly result in somebody not coming to know the Lord, or at least somebody being delayed in coming to know the Lord? Do we think about it that way? And in the American church and in modern Christianity, everything is a focus on, you know, and and don't get me wrong, this isn't a bad thing, but most everything is a focus on, it's just you and God. It's just your relationship with God. It's just how, whatever works with you and God, that's, that's what you got to go with. But there is a very, very big part of this thing called Christianity. There's a very, very big part of this, this following Jesus thing that involves us blessing others, us doing good works. The book of Ephesians actually says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works that were, prepare, that were prepared in advance for us. It's not just about us, our obedience, our relationship with God, us, us hearing from God, us trusting God. It directly affects the people around us. It directly affects the, whether or not this gospel is going to go forward and going to spread and going to get to the ends of the earth. And that's not on me. It's not just on Paul. It's not just on missionaries across the world. It's on every single one of us who says that we desire to follow Jesus. And if we reject that, if we don't feel the weight of that, then this, this commission is, is never going to be filled, fulfilled. There will be people who never hear. There will be people who never have an opportunity to know about the hope that is in Jesus. Do we allow the weight of that to set in in our lives? Or do we just think, it's just me and God. It's just me and God. As long as we're good, everything's good. So Paul finally gets here, and he's been able to use these trials as a way to lead people to Jesus. Skip to the very last few verses here. Verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, Proclaiming, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So the book of Acts ends, and it's a bit of a, a fairy tale ending in one sense. You know, Paul gets to share the gospel freely, and it's all great. But then on the other hand, we're left with so many questions. Well, what happened to Paul? What happened to the church at Rome? Did the church at Rome ever grow? What happened to the church in the rest of the book of Acts? Well, what happened to Peter that we read about? What happened to, you know, all these other believers? What, you know, what happened to this thing? It begs the question of what comes next? What came next? What happened next? There's a very specific reason that we're not told what happened next, that this story has an open-ended ending. And it's because this story is supposed to be constantly picked up by the next generation, by the next group of people, by the next, by the next person who would say that they're going to follow Jesus. Acts is not something that we should read and look at and be like, oh, that was a nice story. It ended. That, that's it. No, we are a part of the same story 
that is being displayed here. We are the ones who are now supposed to pick up the torch. We are the ones who are supposed to reach those who have never been reached. Going all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, given the knowledge that they had, the geographical knowledge that they had at this time, Rome was the ends of the earth to them. Rome, it was just assumed at this time that if you set foot on a piece of land, it was probably, it was probably conquered by Rome, and, and, and they thought we are at the front lines of the ends of the earth. But what we know today is that's not the case. That's not the ends of the earth. They hadn't, they hadn't reached it yet. And I don't, I don't think that they fully thought that they had reached it, but they thought, you know, we're close. We're, this thing's going. There's some statistics that I want to read that I, uh, I haven't looked at these super recently, but last night I, I took a look and I printed this out. So there's an organization called the Joshua Project, and what the Joshua Project does is they collect data and information uh, that, that they put together that is meant to help people who desire to get the gospel to people who have never heard, to the unreached people. They, they get all this data so that we can really intentionally accomplish that, so that we can truly and, and with all, like I said, with all intentionality, reach those who have never heard. I'm going to read a couple numbers here that were, to me, just, they were staggering, they were, they were heartbreaking, and they were extremely convicting. Um, 3.14 billion is the number of individuals estimated, the number of individuals who have never even heard of this man named Jesus. They've never even heard. 7.59 billion is the number of people estimated on the face of the planet right now. So if you do the math, and they did the math for me, 41.5% of human beings on this planet right now have never even heard about any of the things that we so often take for granted that we come and listen to on a Sunday. They've never even heard that there is a God that can give them hope in a hopeless situation. They've never heard that there is a God who loves them, who came for them, who died for them. They have no idea. Now, it's easy to think, okay, 41.5%, do the math, there's about 60% who have been reached. Now, you could make that statement, but uh, they don't let us get away with that here. Um, they provide a little pie chart, so I'll read a couple more statistics. So the 41.5% completely unreached, never heard the gospel, ever. 7.1% minimally reached is what they're categorized as. 10.4% superficially reached. 22% partially reached. And finally, 19% significantly reached. And so in reality, when we take a look at those numbers, there's about 80% of the world who has either never heard or who doesn't know that there's a God that loves them, who have not had a real, genuine encounter with the love of God. Now, on one hand, it's easy to, to, to read these statistics, and you know, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty about, about anything, I'm not, but I do hope that there is some sort of conviction here because that's a lot of people. 
That's a lot of, uh, a lot of people's eternities that we're talking about right now. And, and it's easy to just think, well, you know, God doesn't call me to go overseas. God doesn't, it's just, it's not my call to be someone that does that. And that's fine. That's fine if that's not your call. But it is your call to continue this story, to continue being a person that hears his voice, that trusts his voice, and that fulfills his plan. It is, absolutely, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility to share with those around us. The question comes down to, do we actually trust that, that God is going to be the one that, that, that speaks through us, that it's not on us to, to have the perfect words to say? Are we just going to trust that if the opportunity is before us, that we can take it and that it's going to be okay? These numbers are, are staggering. I mean, 3.14 billion people. That's an insane number. And I've I've had the, the privilege, and please do not think that I'm trying to boast in saying any of this, but I've had the privilege to go to places in the world where people actually haven't heard, like come face to face and have been the first group of people to have shared with them that there's hope in Jesus. And, and it struck me when I read verse 28, it says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, in a lot of ways, not in every way, but the, I think that, I think that uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty fair analogy to say that uh, the America of today is much like the Jewish nation of 2,000 years ago. We are, we are you know, majority Christian. Most people who live here would say that they're, that they're followers of Jesus, that they're, that they're Christians. And, and, and so we look like we're kind of the religious nation of the, of the world or a religious nation of the world. Um, but I just have to say, obviously being a citizen who lives here and then having the opportunity to go there, when, when we spoke the gospel, when we shared with the first group of people, there were women who were on their knees with their hands lifted, weeping in tears because of the fact that they truly believed that this was good news. Because of the fact that the situation they found them, themselves in was one where the government was about to come in and was literally about to put TNT to their village. Whether, if they were in there, too bad. Well, it happened. That's the situation they found themselves in. And so they had a reason. They had a need for hope. They understood their need for hope. In America, we have a very difficult time understanding our need for saving, understanding our need for, for that kind of a hope, because we just have everything. We have everything we need, everything we want. Now, like I said, I didn't, I, don't, I didn't want these statistics, and I don't want today to be a, a guilt trip of basically become a missionary. Every one of us needs to become a missionary and move to India or move to China. That's not the case. I do not believe at all that that's what God has planned for every one of us. But what I do want us to walk away with is this big picture that we've just got to see from the book of Acts, which is... God's people, they hear his voice, they trust his voice, and thus they fulfill his plan. Are we people that are listening for the voice of God in our lives? Do we care? Do we even want to hear him speak? And then with that, once we do hear him speak, are we willing to trust and follow what he said? We've been given the blueprint, we've been given the same Holy Spirit that the people in this book have. But the question is, are we going to trust? 
God is a God who is worthy of our trust. And I could spend three more hours up here talking about all the reasons why God is worthy of our trust, all the reasons why God, how, how faithful he is and how good he is to, to his children, how he provides. But it really, it, it wouldn't make a difference because it just is a simple question that you have to answer yourself. Of, are you going to trust? Do I want to hear his voice and will I trust it? And will I fulfill what he has planned for me? And so I'm actually, I'm not going to pray us out today because I think sometimes prayer can oftentimes turn into just either a segue or a way to wrap things up. And so um, I invite anybody who would want to, um, you don't, it doesn't have to be a prayer to, to wrap us up this morning, but it can be, if you feel like you've been touched by the fact that there are 3.14 billion people who have never heard um, or, or whatever you feel like the Lord is speaking to you. And if you do want to come up here and pray and close us out, that's fine too. But um, I just, I want those numbers and, and the reality of what we've talked about to really just, to hit us for a minute. I don't want to allow us to have the opportunity to just run away and to turn our minds to something else. I want us to think about it because it's something that, uh, like I said, it's a reality. These, these numbers represent people and these numbers represent souls and eternities and people that God loves and people that God wants to know him. Um, so yeah. <laughs>